Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the second delivery of Terrograms. Today I'm joined by Bette Figueres in her studio in Barcelona. Bette is truly a pioneer in landscape architecture here in Spain. One could call her a, a matriarch. She's been practicing as a landscape architect independently since 1982. Since 1983, she's been a professor of landscape architecture at the Escola Tecnica Superior de Arquitectura in Barcelona. She was on the team, which was a finalist in the international competition of the Parc de la Villette in Paris. She has won numerous FAD prizes in urban spaces, and she's been on a member of the winning team for a park in Parc de Poblenau in Barcelona. She was a member of the winning team for the Barcelona Botanical Gardens, and she's been a finalist or has won competition for projects in Bilbao, Santiago de Compostela, and Tunis. And with her project for the Barcelona Botanical Gardens, She's won prize in architecture from the city of Barcelona, a FAD prize for exterior spaces, and the project was a finalist for the Mies van der Rohe Prize. Recently, she's made temporary projects for the exposition of Lausanne Jardin in Switzerland and the Artis in Milan. She's been published all over the world, and through her teaching over the past 23 years, she's influenced literally hundreds of fresh, young professionals in the field of landscape architecture. We are honored to be here with you in your studio, and we welcome you, Beth, to Terrograms. Thank you very much. You're a Catalan, no? Yes, I'm a Catalan. Were you born in Barcelona? I was born in Barcelona, yes. But you began your studies in landscape architecture at the University of California. How did you get to Berkeley from Barcelona? Well, I had um, I was studying architecture in Barcelona at the School of Architecture here, and I found out that um, there were some very interesting programs in American universities. I was very lucky. I had uh, some friends there in the states. I had some friends. Uh, who were studying at Georgetown University. And uh, through them and uh, through uh, my being accepted at Georgetown University, I was able to then uh, get into landscape architecture. And my first contact was uh, through the uh, University of California, Berkeley. So. It um, perhaps it was a long way to Berkeley, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a very interesting time to be there. And uh, in a way, I was very lucky to discover the profession there. Mm -hmm. Because you left Barcelona at a very perhaps tumultuous time in the late seventies, there was a big change in the country. Um, and especially here in Barcelona, big change politically, but also in the design world. Could you explain to our listeners a bit what was going on? Well, at the time uh, when I was studying architecture in, in Barcelona, I did my first year and a half studies uh, at university here. There was, the first year there was practically no classes because hmm. the university was sort of half closed. The second year, which started in 1975, was the year that uh, uh, 
the dictator Franco died, and mm -hmm. uh, so there weren't very many <coughs> classes held during that period of time either. So I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really maturing as a student at the university, but rather elsewhere. I was rather uh, uh, linked to uh, certain sort of leftist uh, demonstration movements and uh, very much on the um, on the stream uh, left wing of of uh, the anarchist movements, mm -hmm. and I was very fascinated by uh, by the protests uh, that had gone gone on in the states against uh, the Vietnam War and about all the sort of alternative hippie movements that were appearing in the news or that were coming, that were filtering through the censorship um, from that were coming from abroad, especially from the United States. So in a way, I was uh, very fascinated but, mm. but, uh, by what was going on in the States more yeah. than, um, than being involved in serious university training in, right. in Spain. And so in a way, Berkeley was a natural destination for you? Well, Berkeley was always uh, was like a, um, a myth in a way mm -hmm. and uh, really when I arrived there it was far after 1978 so it was in the uh, 1970s no sorry 1960s which was the peak of the, of the hippie movement, mm -hmm. so it had already calmed down a little bit and people were very serious at their studies mm -hmm. and uh, so it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't uh, a, a hippie experience. Not quite as there. much as Not it quite as much. What did your classmates do during this gap um, between 1974 to 77 when the classes and school was, university was disrupted. How did they, how did they manage to continue their studies? Well, I, um, I've always thought that the very best architects that came out uh, from university uh, during those years that were graduating at the end of the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s were people who had really matured out of a series of political experiences and social experiences. And uh, that has led me to believe that it's not so much uh, how, many, uh, how many years you are at university or, or how much you study during those years, but how much you mature during mm -hmm. those years. And I think it's probably much more important to, to, to have been exposed to these very uh, unsettled moments of, of uh, social changes and of political changes 
than sitting at uh, at a class of uh, mathematic mm -hmm. mathematics or uh, mm -hmm. architecture uh, theory. Who were your colleagues that mediated this transition in that way? Well, for example, uh, during those years, there were people like uh, Beth Gali, there were people like uh, Andreu Arriola um, and Carmo Fiol. There were people like Jordi Belmont and uh, for example Manolo Ruiz Sanchez. People who were uh, studying at the time uh, in Barcelona and who have um, perhaps uh, I think have inherited that kind of energy that was there mm -hmm. during those years mm -hmm. and uh, put it to good practice. Mm -hmm. Then in the early 80s you found yourself in the United Kingdom studying at Edinburgh. How did you make the transition between the United States to the United Kingdom? Well, I was, uh, uh, I had graduated from Georgetown and uh, I was really uh, interested in, in furthering my, my university studies in landscape architecture. I was, um, at the time, uh, there, were, there was a great amount of possibilities in, in the United States. But uh, there were also some very good schools in, in Britain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to visit some of them. I visited uh, Edinburgh University, uh, and, um, and it was a fantastic school, very small program uh, in a fantastic location. And uh, it was a program which was not meant to train very technically oriented people, but rather wanted to make the, the students understand, uh, understand the landscape as a whole. Mm -hmm. So it was in a way very gestaltic. It looked at uh, the, all the components of the landscape uh, together, uh, not just specializing in, in fields. So I, I was very, very interested um, with the program there. I met the director of the program, who is a fantastic uh, person, uh, John Byram. He, um, I th to me, he was a very important influence mm -hmm. in, in relation to, to the landscape. So. I applied to enter uh, Edinburgh University and I was accepted at that um, program and that's how I decided to sort of mm -hmm. come back to Europe. Mm -hmm. Did the studies there in uh, Edinburgh, did they, um, were they framed very much by the history of English, the English landscape and the English sort of romantic um, ideologies? Did you find that? No, not at all, not at all, not not uh, in uh, not at Edinburgh University. I think uh, we were tending to look at at the landscape, uh, 
uh, at that time in the beginning of the 1980s we were looking more at the sort of ecological uh, aspects of of the uh, of landscape architecture too so it wasn't looking at the history and the um, tradition of garden design in England but uh, rather different we were looking at at um, uh, reclaiming projects mm -hmm. and uh, things to that at that time were were much more um, sort of pioneer in that sense. Was form very important? Form was important at Edinburgh. Yes, uh, there were certain universities in the rest of Britain who focused more on on. Um, on other aspects, more either more technical or more ecological, so to speak. But uh, form was important at, at Edinburgh University, and uh, we were confronted to the design uh, process at very early stages. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, um, yeah. And then you came back to Barcelona, and you began work with MBM, perhaps one of the most influential firms of the time. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I was, uh, in a way I was very lucky that uh, after uh, six years away from Spain, I got back, uh, I got back home at, at a time when the, the country was uh, being reborn in a way. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, although there was a severe economic crisis when I arrived, and uh, there wasn't very many, very much work um, for for architects, and for neither for landscape architects, I was able to to work for a whole year in Martorell Boigas Meki, and that was uh, it was. Um, a great experience mm -hmm. to to be um, especially to be confronted with uh, a new way of uh, uh, going about doing uh, landscape work in the public realm in the open space in the public open space in cities and and really was uh, I was very fortunate mm -hmm. I I could join uh, this office. Uh, and although it wasn't very long time, it was a uh, very intense time mm -hmm. for me. Did did your colleagues feel at this time feel as though the work in the landscape and in public space was really a new a new um, way to approach the city? And were you all searching for uh, new methods? Well, um, there was a very important or key person at that time in Barcelona, and that was uh, Oriol Boigas. And apart from being an architect and having his own practice, he was also uh, very important as an ideologist uh, for the city. And uh, he, he was the, the head of the planning department. He was uh, in the planning department uh, for some time, and he was. Uh, uh, in in great uh, I think in great synteny with uh, with Pascual Maragall who was at the moment the the mayor 
Uh, I think that one of the best things that happened to Barcelona was these two people being together at one place at one time mm -hmm. because uh, Boigas uh, really believed that uh, after this 40 years of, of dictatorship what the city had to do was to in a way reinvent its open uh, public space because public space was to him uh, the place where people met, the people interacted, where the citizens uh, really got together and moved through the space. And uh, Maragall really trusted that idea. And instead of being uh, of producing sort of grand planning stage plans for the city or or um, he, he decided to trust Boigas in that uh, smaller, very high quality projects would uh, extend their influence outside their, their, uh, their limits and would really produce um, a very good effect in that, a renewal effect, mm -hmm. not just in the physical uh, uh, form of open space, but in the um, in the social also. So mm -hmm. I think that uh, we were very lucky to to have that happen, and uh, it was. Um, and I think it's lasted until now. This uh, synergia, synergia, mm -hmm. really has uh, continued through all the other projects that have. Uh, been going on. In the 80s, did you um, and your colleagues find yourself referring to any other models of uh, public space design or landscape architecture? Did you go elsewhere to, um, did you search elsewhere or did you invent from here? I think that one of the most surprising things uh, of the of that period of uh, public open space projects in Barcelona, was that they didn't really, or we didn't really look abroad for any models mm -hmm. because there really weren't any uh, clear models that we could use as uh, as influence. But rather, what we were trying to do is put to form, to landscape form, the. Um, uh, the essence of of, uh, of modern architecture, modernist, well, you call it modernistic mm -hmm. architecture, uh, and uh, for example, how the um, Bauhaus and um, in the influence of the Bauhaus, how that applied to to landscape. Um, shapes to landscape forms and I think that uh, uh, it was very important for the projects to look very much to on one hand to where they were to what kind of program they were serving uh, not forgetting not never forgetting their contact with the city uh, 
but trying to bring in the sort of international style in in the um, in the decisions mm-hmm. uh, related to the the form and to the materials and to and I think that uh, that was the the real challenge at that point so we are not trying to be historically um, or looking for the roots in, in historical time mm-hmm. uh, terms but I think that we were trying to really incorporate the site in in the final project mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now since you returned back to Barcelona you um, have practiced independently was it clear to you from then that you wanted to lead your own practice? Well, it, uh, I suppose it, it, uh, the, the situation in Spain was very different from what I would have found in the United States or in Britain, where it would have been perhaps very, very difficult to start our, your own practice from scratch. But for some reason... Mm, Spain was still the landscape architecture was very new there weren't really any universities who were teaching the the discipline there were no arch- landscape architects in Spain at the time and so in a way it was it was very um, exciting because it was so new and right. uh, there were no, there was no one else around and, and on the other hand, I felt very, very alone. <laughs> I can uh, imagine. And uh, really eager to be in touch with uh, a lot of uh, with other landscape architects. But uh, yeah, little by little, the profession has got more and more um, better known in Spain. And now things are sort of going to normal. Not yet, because it's still not... Um, uh, it's, it's still, it hasn't reached the point where we have uh, landscape architecture in the rest of Europe or in the States. So I uh, still have uh, some way to go, but... Um, it's growing as a it's profession. It's growing as a profession now. How many, how many people do you have working in your office now? Well, it's uh, eight of us at the moment, and um, we... We don't have uh, plans to to grow um, to grow in the sense of, of uh, enlarging the office, but what uh, what we've uh, done is when when we have large projects, we try to uh, collaborate with other offices. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to. Um, n- never have to say no to a project right. just because our office is small. Mm-hmm. But then on a day-to-day basis, it is uh, still difficult uh, to run a large office in landscape architecture in, in Spain. So Large meaning eight or... No, large meaning 15, uh, 30. Where do you find your best employees? Do they come from Spain or do they come from elsewhere? Well, I uh, I'm very lucky. I uh, I have people from several 
places come in, uh, first of all, come in to work in Barcelona because they like the city, and then to work in, uh, in landscape architecture because, because landscape architecture is so important in mm. this town. So I'm very lucky because of that. And uh, there is, uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to meet and to interview people from practically all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, I'm even having a Chinese person come in uh, for an interview next week. So it's, uh, it's very good. I, I very much, I'm very, very interested in, in getting um, people from outside of Spain. And of course, I, I work with people from, from Barcelona as well. Mm -hmm. Are they typically landscape architects who apply, or do you find you have many architects who come knocking at your door? I have um, both. Both. I have uh, landscape architects and, and architects. Architects who, who are very interested in, in the landscape, so uh, eager to, to get involved in landscape <laughs> projects. So. Do you have in, uh, do you have space for interns? I know there'll be some listeners out here who might be looking for summer work. Do you normally have temporary space for summer interns? Yes, yes. I I always keep uh, two uh, posts for people who, for example, in in Europe we have a fantastic uh, exchange program called Leonardo da Vinci mm -hmm. for recent graduates that allows for great mobility and um, you get people from all over Europe and uh, they can stay up to a year in the office and they get a, a grant uh, that allows them for a certain uh, lease to get uh, installed and so it's very, uh, it's very, very helpful mm -hmm. to uh, to have the, these mechanisms for interchange. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us what you're working on right now? Um, right now, we are doing a series of um, projects related to uh, the landscape around hotels. We've been working with that type of project for the past five years and um, they're very interesting I think the very interesting kind of landscape work because it allows for thought uh, in terms of sort of semi-public open space but then usually you're in touch with a private client mm -hmm. which is also um, helpful sometimes and um, some good projects come out out of out of these uh, gardens. And um, I'm working. What I'm working today on is a, a very very interesting project in the south of uh, in the south of Barcelona in a in a vineyard. Mm -hmm. uh, they're they're constructing a, a cellar in a very um, a very beautiful and fragile landscape and uh, we're working on the 
the integration of these uh, vineyards in the landscape uh, and looking at um, looking at being fairly um, we want to be very brave in how we we tackle the problem but yet we want to be very respectful in in terms of um, the uh, the existing landscape so it's yeah it's a it's a good very good project mm -hmm. now in the work you're doing with the hotels and the work you're doing with the vineyard are you collaborating with architects or are you working directly for a client well um, both we've uh, we've had in in the in the vineyard uh, project we are working with the the, the architects in the area around the building and we're working directly for the client in the areas that are away from the building mm -hmm. because it, they're very large vineyards mm -hmm. so um, we're in this case we're doing both uh, in um, but it was the architects who um, introduced us to the client so in a way it's um, the architects are very important mm -hmm. uh, in uh, landscape architecture. Do you find they're your primary clients? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think the best, um, the best projects for me have been those projects where a very good uh, collaboration has taken place with the client and with other professionals and I think that uh, working with good architects is a, an mm -hmm. absolute pleasure. Would um, you say the project at the Botanical Gardens in Barcelona was one of those projects? Yeah, the project uh, working with Carlos Ferrater and José Luis Canosa was a, a real treat and um, it was a very, very good, uh, very interesting process. It took about Ten years wow. to to for the project to uh, evolve because uh, not because we were very lazy but because <laughs> they uh, they had some financial difficulties in raising the money mm -hmm. to to get the work. Going. Was it raised privately or publicly? No, it was raised publicly. It, uh, it the botanic garden belongs to the city council. Yes. And um, luckily, in the end, they managed to get some funds from um, from Europe, and uh, so that's how it got going, really, mm -hmm. because it was an expensive project. Could you describe a bit your role on the project? And uh, Carlos Ferrete is an architect, and Jose Luis uh, Canosa, Canosa is, is also, also an architect. An architect. Uh, this project was very much um, was very much the result of a, of a teamwork because one of the most important parts of the project was the botanical aspect of the yes. project, and we had a very good botanist in the team, and uh, he was the ideologist of how the plants had to be shown in the garden, and one of his main ideas was that we shouldn't go to sort of 18th and 19th century botanic gardens where plants were ordered taxonomically 
Okay. But we had to look for an ecological uh, way of showing plants. And so what they thought was that we could produce these, uh, they called it phyto-episodes. 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 So they were uh, plant uh, groups. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not literally uh, plant associations or plant communities, but they were plant groups of plants that lived in very similar environments in uh, different parts of the uh, Mediterranean climate zones of the world. So um, in that sense, it was to be uh, a Mediterranean garden, but also an ecological garden, mm -hmm. because it was, it was showing the plants uh, sort of in, in um, an ecological uh, organized in an ecologically organized way. Is this where the idea of the triangulation and the construction of uh, right. smaller microclimates come into, uh, exactly. comes into play? Exactly, exactly. So it, that, uh, this idea, uh, we, we wanted to express also in the shape of the garden and the, in the same way that there were these uh, sort of grits that usually organized the old uh, botanic gardens where the different genres or species or families were organized in, in plots that were usually square. Well, we tried to adapt this kind of um, geometrical approach to um, our site. And our site had a very steep slope and had several different orientations. We thought that the square grid was not good enough because, um, because of the slope and that a, a triangular grid would uh, really help us mm -hmm. uh, adapt better because mm -hmm. triangles always adapt better to, to mm -hmm. slopes. And one thing that when we were um, working out how this triangular grid could be uh, uh, imposed on this uh, topography, we, we thought of a, like a, a fishnet stocking going mm -hmm. over uh, the slope and how this would have a different tension where, where the slope was steeper or when it was flatter or and um, so it was really sort of a mechanism of adapting this kind of uh, grid, sort of uh, elastic mm -hmm. grid onto, onto the ground. We weren't really wanting to change the existing topography a lot. We wanted to keep it uh, in, its, in, in that it was very diverse too, so it really helped the, the project. So in a way it was really the botanical idea that helped uh, develop a formal mm -hmm. idea no? so, or a, a, a shape idea. So I, I think it was a very fortunate collaboration in that sense. It's a wonderful description you give us yeah. and a brilliant uh, brilliant idea. Yeah, it was, uh, and the um, first plants 
of the of all the paths uh, were developed uh, in this office with a very very good uh, landscape architect who is working here with us, Andrew Savage, who is from Edinburgh too, and uh, and he he was the one who even before um, computers was mm -hmm. drawing away all the uh, uh, topography and all the all the paths. On so was the, the project finally retrofitted into uh, the computer? Yeah, yeah. It was finally uh, in the very latest uh, stages. It was mm -hmm. finally <laughs> digitalized, and and when it was built, uh, we had it all in computer already. Mm -hmm. so. What do you? find drives your design process are you able to pinpoint any one or two methodologies or um, catalysts that help you think about your landscape projects well I every project is uh, to me very difficult and uh, I've never been able to find a, a f an easy project and and I become very skeptical if one project looks easy mm -hmm. because I suspect that something is not working properly and uh, I think that in this uh, difficulty or initial difficulty I try to uh, to to really have a very mm, <coughs> as deep as possible of an insight in the in the place and and where the the project is and what the clients uh, need and I think that in the same way that the botanic garden for example I was uh, clear that it had to be for the plants mm -hmm. and it had to be for botany I, I think that um, I, I don't like being um, uh, not serious with the kind of uh, programs that that the different projects uh, have, and the, so I am very uh, reluctant to to not tackle the problems uh, from from the site and mm -hmm. from uh, and from the program. That's why, in a way, I don't believe in in. Sort of international kind of solutions because I think that um, projects are very local and mm -hmm. landscape projects are especially uh, linked to their to their sites. Mm -hmm. Do you feel you have a responsibility to to innovate or to come up with something new? Not in generic terms. No, I think that uh, one has to come up with the best answer for the project. But not, but not innovating for the sakes of innovation. Mm -hmm. I think that um, I, I, I don't want to. Uh, I I don't like having um, uh, or thinking that uh, there's a, a kind of cliche of projects that uh, or a certain style of projects that have to come out of my office. I think that that's, uh, and, I, and I don't have an urge 
to to being provocative with the kind of projects that that we do, but rather I I think sometimes I much rather that the project looks like so nothing has been done, mm -hmm. or that's very do you um, believe effortless. That do you believe landscape architecture can be invisible? I think that uh, landscape architect has um, a, a, a sort of an obligation to being very respectful. And uh, if that's invisible, mm -hmm. in some cases it is invisible. In some cases it's obviously not invisible, but um, I think that in the decision uh, making process there's one point where you can say I do nothing or I do something mm. and I think that's the great challenge of the landscape that sometimes your will is to say that you're not producing anything mm -hmm. so. do you think landscape architects of today in general are doing too much well, some, some obviously uh, are, yeah, because I think that in the same way that uh, in architecture there are these, um, we call them verets in Spanish, or there are these uh, people who, uh, who are producing a type of architecture that is uh, very that tries to be almost uh, an icon mm -hmm. in, in cities and, and uh, both in private work and, and in public work uh, but architecture uh, has a certain, certain aspects that are becoming um, very um, sculptural perhaps uh, in both in a good way and in a bad way. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that uh, landscape architects have been contaminated, in some cases, with that kind of ideas. And I think that it's, um, yeah, there are certain certain landscape architects that are are very, perhaps are, are having this role of being provocative. And well, some projects depict that kind of mm -hmm. attitude, uh, and I think that it's when the project really sort of shows off that um, there's a kind of attitude to um, uh, not be respectful, but rather quite the contrary. Uh, I think it's when the project is not good. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, there there's some uh, very provocative landscape architects who do excellent projects, and that's when mm, I think that's when the project has been able to really uh, read into its site and read into its program in a good way. So Whose work do you truly respect? Well, I. In, in this century, in the last century, I, I really, I think there were three very important influences to me. 
there is the um, uh, Jeffrey Jellicoe, uh, Roberto Burle Marx, and uh, maybe to a lesser extent, but um, also important, was Luis Barragan. I think that those three were very, very important. Um, then um, people like Lawrence Halprin or um, Dan Kiley were, I think, were also of, of great importance mm -hmm. to a sort of general thought. And I think that the people who have influenced me most uh, in recent times are Peter Walker and Martha Schwartz, mm -hmm. especially when they were working together. I think they have a period of time when the two of them uh, produced projects that were thought with a little bit by their two minds mm -hmm. that are absolutely exquisite and brilliant. And I think that, um, well, another uh, landscape architect that I very, very uh, much respected in Europe was Kienast. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, to have him leave the profession at such a young age. Yes, yes, terrible. Yeah. How did you get involved in teaching? Well, the first year after, well, after getting back from, from Edinburgh University, um, when I got to Barcelona, there was um, the head of the Department of Urban Planning at the School of uh, Architecture in Barcelona uh, was organizing a course, a postgraduate course in landscape architecture. The first and the first, the very first. And uh, when I arrived, he phoned me up one day and said, uh, I'd like to talk to you. I have these ideas. I think that <coughs> landscape architecture should uh, is, a, is a very important discipline. And we, from the School of Architecture, we, sh we should encourage that there is a, a postgraduate course. Wouldn't you want to teach? And I was horrified. <laughs> you were very young at the time, I, no? Yeah, you I were 25 of, years old. Right, I was just out of um, school myself and I thought that I was far too much responsibility. <laughs> but uh, I got uh, involved and at first I taught along with uh, David Mackey, of Martirei Voigas Mackey, so uh, I was his uh, teaching assistant, and and after some time, I became uh, I, I started teaching on my own, mm -hmm. so to speak. You've taught all over Europe as well as in the United States. Can you see any differences between the students that you teach? Um, well. I see, uh, I see certain differences between certain universities. Uh, it's difficult to perhaps be uh, very generalist and say the United States is different from Europe. Um, I think that there are universities that are uh, different from one another. 
uh, even in in Spain, there are people who are teaching landscape architecture in Madrid who have very different ideas mm -hmm. of the ideas that uh, are developed in the School of Architecture in Barcelona. So I think it's it's more a matter of uh, it's not so much uh, concerning sort of continents, but concerning schools. Schools. That's interesting. How many landscape architecture programs are here in Spain? Well, uh, I think there are, at this moment, there are two postgraduate courses at the School of Architecture in Barcelona. One that is master's degree, as you would understand it in uh, Anglo-Saxon education, mm -hmm. and another one which is, um, it's called also master's uh, course, but it's more of a um, sort of a doctorate course. And it's, Is it yes, a shorter? Yeah, it's shorter, shorter and it's only two um, two days a week. For how many years? Two. Two years. Do you think that this is enough to train landscape landscape architects? Well, I there been there's been a lot of deb debate about that. I think that when people uh, reach this kind of level, if they have a good background in both in terms of project-oriented uh, disciplines, architecture, or planning, or engineering, or in um, the, the natural sciences, I think that two, a two-year program is perhaps uh, enough. But again, as I told you earlier, I think that um, uh, architecture and landscape architecture, and I think maybe even landscape even more so than architecture, I think are more to do to do about the maturity of the, of mm -hmm. the student <clears throat> than of the number of hours that he has spent in his classroom. So I think that uh, I there are very good people that are going to be very good landscape architects um, that maybe come from a different background. And what I what I do very firmly believe is that it's very difficult to be a good architect or be a good landscape architect if you don't have a certain level of awareness in, in terms of uh, ideological awareness, I think. Mm -hmm. How would you characterize the relationship between the architecture program and the landscape architecture program? And has there, since the introduction of landscape architecture as a degree program, in Spain, um, since its introduction, has there has it created a contested ground? Yeah, I think that um, I suppose there there could be said that there's a kind of rivalry, uh, which I don't. Um, I think it's not. It exists uh, probably in uh, in theory more than it exists in, in, in practical terms and in the practice, in the uh, praxis of the professions. 
obviously there is a difference in Spain between landscape architects and architects because the discipline of landscape architecture is not fully recognized by the Spanish government. Mm-hmm. And that is a great drawback for, for the correct uh, evolution of the profession. I myself am registered as a landscape architect in Britain because that's where I graduated. But although I'm a member of the Association of Landscape Architects in Spain, it's not a it's not a proper uh, uh, it's not a proper association. What are the steps that need to be taken for the Spanish government to recognize landscape architects? And uh, are they is this in process? It's uh, not in process, and I think that the Spanish government is still not very much um, involved in in recognizing the discipline. I think it, it'll be a long time. Why would they be so reluctant? Because uh, there has been a lot of pressure uh, to keep the um, architects discipline as a, as a whole together with urban planning and um, I think that there is a kind of pressure that that shouldn't be broken up into different mm-hmm. disciplines and also uh, I think there's also one thing and that uh, the public administration and I, I'm sure not just in Spain is very lazy <laughs> so the public administration only reacts to thousands of people demanding something, right. and one, and once I think that uh, that is done, then they get on to work. But otherwise, if they can do um, less work, it's, uh, mm-hmm. I mean they're not going to do it for us. Right. And oh, I think that one of the perhaps drawbacks of uh, landscape architects is that they're not very aggressive in <laughs> professional terms and I think that uh, we are not really fighting altogether. Uh, of course there, there aren't very many of us no. uh, So they're, uh, in Spain and I think at this moment it's roughly 200 of us. It's so a very small group. It's a very small group. It's not a very sort of uh, activist kind of group and giving a lot of problems to the public administration and the public administration is very lazy so mm-hmm. and and only reacts to great amount how do you juggle your roles as a professor a city landscape architect and a practitioner this must get very very difficult on a day-to-day basis yeah it is uh, it is fairly difficult because uh, they're all very time-consuming and um, very challenging aspects of the of the profession, and uh, they're all very interesting too. So it's difficult to to say no to mm-hmm. either of them. And um, yeah, I'm trying to uh, get them in good balance, mm-hmm. although it's not always easy. I should mention that you've worked for the Metropolitan Unit of Projects for Barcelona as well as um, since the year 2000 for you've been a landscape architect of the region of Barcelona and then between 2002 and 2004 landscape architect of infrastructures. Yeah. Um, What does this all mean to us? Well, 
I started out working in a newly formed, um, they called it unit, um, that it was an office, a public office, that was dealing with landscape projects in the region of Barcelona. Uh, outside of the, Bars the city of Barcelona boundaries, but um, in the what we call the first crown of uh, of municipalities in about Barcelona, mm -hmm. the metropolitan area of Barcelona includes Barcelona itself and 27 other towns and cities. Some of them, some of these uh, towns and cities are are very large and very rich, and have means to produce. Uh, their own projects and have their own technicians and all that. But then there are others that are very small and then don't have very large budgets. Mm -hmm. And so what has been created is a sort of common uh, pool of, um, of technicians and, and money mm -hmm. to tackle um, problems that in, in some cases they're even belong to more than one uh, municipal uh, area, but uh, there are, for Landscapes example... Landscapes which overlap. Exactly. So that's that's the... Uh, I imagine the river basins are... The river basins, and there, there are some certain outskirts of towns that were uh, really important places, but that were sort of outside places when you looked at each town individually, and I think that looking at them in, a, in an overall view is very useful to What has your role been on these teams? Um, I worked along with civil engineers and with architects to, to develop landscape projects. And of course, one, I think, very unique thing that uh, we landscape architects have, and I think that it's really what um, makes us different from other uh, disciplines is our, our good knowledge of, the, um, of plant materials, mm -hmm. especially. And I think that um, in some cases my work was uh, tackling, uh, tackling large-scale projects inserting them in the landscape context uh, and, and in some cases was uh, something as um, sort of precise as deciding what kind of tree species would go in in one street or would go in a plaza so I did uh, I had a, a fairly large range of um, decisions to, mm -hmm. to make and that um, I think was very good. And I think that one of the things that I try to encourage most uh, in my students is that they are able to um, have uh, a say in both the large scale and the small scale. And I think that uh, this possibility of reading is fairly unique also in, in the landscape. World, so you would say that you, the teams that you've worked on have been have had open ears and have been very receptive to your voice. 
Well, I think that, yes, when they ask for, for a question, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's because they think that they need you, and I think that that's when the landscape architect really becomes appreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't, of course, there to impose any, anything. <laughs> so, uh, in that sense, I was very well accepted. Mm-hmm. What are Barcelona's projects of the future? Well, there are some uh, very, very important, very key projects. I think that the, the, perhaps the one that will see the light uh, hmm. sooner is the um, Sagrera project, which mm-hmm. is the, the big railway station. Mm. It it occupies a space in the city that was formerly occupied by a railway line. It's a very large area. It's a very central area. It links several different uh, quarters that are uh, not entirely different, but each of them have their personality. And I think it'll be a, a very, very good op- opportunity to develop a very good, interesting, good and interesting project. Um, it's linked to a, a, an infrastructure which is very needed to, by the city, which is this uh, railway station that it's going to incorporate the high-speed train mm-hmm. connecting France with the rest of Spain. And um, so I think, I think um, in that sense, the core of the project will be this railway station and, and the landscape uh, projects will probably deal, a lot of them will deal with uh, roof or uh, situations where something is below mm-hmm. that doesn't really allow for uh, an absolute contact with uh, grounds, so that will be a difficult mm-hmm. aspect of it. That's quite a common condition here. It is a common in, condition in because the city, the Barcelona city um, limits are very small, and Barcelona is a very small city in terms of um, grounds. Of course, the uh, it's only in the city there are only one and a half million people where in the metropolitan area it's over four million so the real barcelona is four million million people Mm -hmm. Uh, the administrative boundaries are are much smaller but uh, yeah if we spoke about important Barcelonian projects in, in greater terms. There are several very important ones linked to the airport and linked to the, um, the access from the airport into town in Hospitalet de Llobregat. There's a very, very important operation there. And as far as uh, of smaller but very high quality projects going on. There's the zoo project. Ah, what are they doing at the zoo? Which um, is, I think, a, a very, I think it will be one of 
the most interesting projects. Is it a complete on. reconstruction? No, it's really a complete new zoo, and uh, they're they're going to remove the zoo from where it is now, which is in, in a park, in a historic park called Parque de Ciudad Bella, and they're going to move it to an area near the Forum on mm. the seafront. And uh, they're going to concentrate in this new area all the animals related to water. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be the um, marine animals, but also animals that are um, sort of aquatic. And the land-related animals, will they stay in their And the land-related animals are going to be taken out of town and taken to a kind of reserve area. Ah which is uh, an area outside Barcelona, outside the city, the urban area. And um, it's, uh, it's a, a very large mm. um, to 250 acre. Do you have a panda here? A what? A panda? Mm, we do, we do. And will the panda go to this the reserve? The panda will go to the reserve, mm. yeah. But, for example, the, um, the primates, the uh, chimpanzees and the gorillas, they were thinking of keeping them in the uh, urban, mm -hmm. in the forum. So, I don't know how There's that's... something slightly uh, appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, they have very urban personalities. I think so. <laughs> Um, speaking of the forum, could you describe a bit to our listeners what the forum is now and what it was built for? Yeah. Well, the grounds of the forum are very large. There are over 100 uh, hectares in the whole. And uh, it was a, the most derelict part of the town because it was, on one hand, it was the poorest neighborhoods uh, nearby, but also it was all the uh, infrastructures that the city didn't want to have nearby, uh, such as the um, a power station, an old fuel power station uh, that was uh, converted into a gas power station recently. Then there was an incinerating plant and there was the water, uh, the wastewater treatment plant. So all these uh, very important infrastructures that the city needed and couldn't get rid of mm -hmm. uh, were really um, uh, making it difficult for the city to uh, incorporate the spaces uh, around them. They were the, the the area is also in a very strategic position because it's at the um, um, mouth of the river Bissos, which is a it's not a very large river, but it's uh, it's what we have. So it's <laughs> not, uh, and uh, and the sea uh, in a part of the coast which uh, had. Uh, or was wanting to be also incorporated in, in the city. So uh, the idea was that the city had to be able to incorporate all these things within it, not get rid of them and mm -hmm. place them somewhere else, which on the other hand was nearly impossible. 
but uh, they, they needed a, a very large uh, investment to be able to, first of all, cover up the, the wastewater treatment plant, uh, well, reconvert the, um, the power station into a almost non-polluting power station because it's uh, fueled with gas, with natural gas now, and uh, also um, incorporating the incinerating plant, which is possibly the most difficult feature to get um, to incorporate, but uh, with a series of filters and God knows what, the pollution that is coming out of that uh, incinerating plant is mm, diminished to levels that are acceptable mm -hmm. for people to to mm, conduct normal lives mm. nearby. So, um, so the uh, I think the the challenge was how we could make the uh, public investment that all this were uh, needed to really um, benefit the, uh, the citizens and turn that area into an area where people could uh, live in, could walk through, could uh, be in touch with the sea and be in touch with the river. So uh, really that, because it, uh, it was, um, it had a sort of critical mass, that kind of operation, because it was so, the investment just to tackle the infrastructure aspect was so important. It was enormous. It was enormous, that the whole project needed a lot of also private investment behind. And, uh, so there was things like mm, buildings, there was a, a, a very important auditorium that is going to be the, that is like the central core of the life in that area, the convention center, several office buildings, uh, a hospital, uh, old people's hospital, um, and also a housing operation, mm -hmm. very uh, kind of high quality, uh, real estate uh, operation in the Avonal Mar. So that whole thing um, was able to put forward the money to, to build all that. Is it finished? No, it's not entirely finished. Uh, there's a fairly large plot of land uh, right next to the uh, auditorium building uh, that is going to be a, a campus, a university campus a public university campus, and um, then there's the zoo to go on as well. And uh, there are some more um, sort of student housing that uh, is going to go on next to the campus. So there's few things that um, mm. are still to go. Did you play a role on this project? I did. I played a role from the very beginning of the uh, planning stages. The, the planning stages uh, took place in Barcelona Regional, where I was working at the moment, and uh, together with, I think, the key person that uh, Barcelona has had to 
since the Olympic times with uh, Jose Antonio Cedillo. He was uh, the disciple of Oriol Boigas, and uh, he's the person who really is behind all the uh, important, both in the Olympic period and afterwards, in the important decisions that the city has made. And uh, in this case, what uh, Acevillo wanted was something that I thought was very interesting, and it was that the, all the space that uh, was incorporated into this forum process uh, had to be designed from a general master plan, but had to be designed as a sort of patchwork, as a mosaic of projects that were to relate to one another and through this relation could really create a great level of quality and excitement. So he decided to split up the whole area into 30 projects and those 30 projects were uh, went to competition. Mm -hmm. So. In, and we uh, produced the competitions for these 30 projects at once. So uh, there were a lot, there was a, a high level of, uh, of interest and activity for a while with, with all these projects coming in and, and all trying to match them and to uh, put them together in, a, in an interesting way. Some of the projects were strictly engineering projects, some of them were architecture projects, and some of them were clearly landscape projects. Mm -hmm. uh, Is there one project that knits them together? Well, there's one large open space in the center of the forum area, which is called the Esplanade, mm -hmm. which was the project was, that was won by the team of Elias Torres and Martinez La Peña. And I think that was the, perhaps the central uh, landscape projects. And uh, then there were others like the um, Faera project, the FO project for Nofos, and uh, the Avalos Yerredos project, and the Harbor landscape project. So there were several projects that uh, met uh, in this area. And I think that uh, in general they were very, very good quality. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I regret not having done is having been much more strict in, in the implementation of some of these projects because I think that some of them were done, were finally built in, a, in much lesser quality than they needed. And I think that was due, in a way, to lack of uh, funds and, mm -hmm. uh, and also because things were very fast. Mm -hmm. some, and, and I think that that shows in some of the projects. And I, I regret that because I think that's something that we should have controlled much more from mm -hmm. the city uh, council part uh, office. But um, I think that part of the uh, 
project of Saeda and parts of the project of Avalos y Aveiros, uh should have had more uh, more control, both on their side and on our side. Mm -hmm. and I think that's tell us a bit of a mm -hmm. of a shame. It, it it's not the architect's responsibility at all. It's not their fault. It's more the city's fault as to how it was all organized. Mm -hmm. I've heard this space um, criticized as being very large and vast and um, missing of any of human scale. Um, how do you how do you accept this criticism or I dispute think, it? I think it's really true, and it's I think the great beauty of it that it's very vast and a very large scale and uh, perhaps. Uh, very barren and uh, I think that because of this great big square that um, Elias Torres designed which which doesn't have a square form mm -hmm. by any means it has a, it's a very square. It, it's more <laughs> like an octopus mm -hmm. that it, it has a core center but then it has several fingers that uh, go into the city and into the other um, the other parts of, of the area, the other parks. And I think that, uh, well, it's very large in terms of a square. It's uh, 17 uh, hectares. Wow. And 17 hectares is just below Tiananmen in Peking. It's a, it's a second sort of largest square in the world. And, and of course that means large and that means uh, and because practically all of it is on top of the um, wastewater treatment plant or on top of the highway uh, or on top of some harbor infrastructures on the other side so it's um, uh, it's barren it, mm -hmm. it has no trees it's a rooftop really mm -hmm. in it sounds like an incredible feat to have been able to place all of this public space within such um, gargantuan yeah. infrastructures. Yeah, yeah. I think. It, well, they. Uh, I mean, it's. I think it's uh, very brave of uh, Acevillo to 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 have had this idea and to have continued with this idea all the way through because really it's. Uh, very easy to say we're going to cover up the highway and the uh, wastewater treatment plant, but mm, it's so expensive and so difficult. There's so many technical difficulties mm -hmm. that uh, I think it is um, a great thing that really was done. Do you see that your the population of Barcelona appreciates this? Well, I think that there was uh, a very bad move. Uh, very uh, unfortunate move around the forum and that was that they wanted to have the excuse was a little bit like the Olympic Games they wanted to have these kind of cultural Olympic Games and um, they organized a series of events in 2004 which were uh, what uh, gave Barcelona the deadline to fulfill uh, in order to have all that space ready. And uh, 
these kind of uh, uh, cultural Olympics, I think, were uh, were not something that the people of Barcelona understood. Mm -hmm. It, uh, I think, it wasn't explained well enough, and. For a long time, they kept on bombarding us with these ideas of the cultural forum and blah, blah, blah. But then what it came up to was that this, this piece of the city which was uh, fenced and you had to pay 40 euros to go in for, uh, I don't know, some fairly large amount of money. Fenced and privatized, in, in effect. Yeah, and uh, for five months, this whole, uh, of course, there were all these events in the news and all the rest of it, but I think that it wasn't, of course, it's very easy to charge 40 euros to see a football match, mm -hmm. and that is something that people understand, but it's not very much understood to that um, you have to pay so much money to enter a part of the town and to see exhibitions there that weren't perhaps all that, that interesting. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I think uh, that the city hasn't really uh, forgiven. So mm -hmm. it is a little bit that kind of, But I think, I think it's not uh, the responsibility of the actual uh, work or the actual uh, infrastructure that was built, but it's the responsibility of this kind of idea of the of the cultural Olympics right. that mm, a bit didn't, I think didn't quite work. And the city, per, the population, perhaps measured the place by the success of the cultural Olympics, yeah. and not by and not um, by the, the place, place itself. Right. And I think that at this moment there's still a bit of an undefinition as to uh, as to how this place is going to be managed mm -hmm. and by, mm, well, they're starting to manage it now properly, so I hope that uh, people will come to terms with that space, mm -hmm. because I think it's very, very important and very high quality. Okay, I'd like to pose to you a final question and give you a chance to perhaps summarize on um, your role as a teacher as a practitioner and as a city agent. How do you see your work in these three fields evolving in the near future and perhaps long-term future? Uh, well, as far as uh, teaching, I, uh, I very much like to teach studio work. And I've been teaching basically studio courses and I really enjoy being confronted with projects and what has ended up happening to me is that sometimes the uh, my most important role in the office is very similar to the role I do teaching so in a way um, Perhaps because I'm, I'm so busy, I don't have the time to draw directly mm -hmm. the, my own projects, and I end up sort of drawing through the hands of the people that work with me. And uh, in a way, I'm 
I find myself uh, almost teaching in my own office. Whereas in the studio work that I do with my students, uh, because I like them to, to show the importance of project making and project decision making, I see myself almost being um, a practitioner when I teach. So I think that these two aspects are becoming, are becoming um, very close mm -hmm. to, to one another. And I think that it is, uh, in the end, it is good that the students receive uh, an education that is very close to to the practice and and I cannot help in my own practice being a little bit of a teacher so mm -hmm. in, in the end uh, I think that I'm hybridizing both mm -hmm. and as far as the um, my relation to the um, to the city council I'm now uh, working as an advisor for different projects, and uh, I think it's for me it's a great honor to be asked as a as an advisor uh, because I think that um, uh, well Barcelona is a is a place that has very very high quality professionals and um, and where landscape architecture is still perhaps not um, as uh, fully recognized as, as, for example, architecture is. So I think that um, having this view from the landscape uh, point, from the landscape aspects uh, into the um, works that the city is constructing and wants to construct in the near future, I think it's it's a great, uh, really, I, I think it's a great occasion. And I don't know if I, in the end, I, I work there also a little bit with, with a teacher kind of attitude mm -hmm. in some cases, uh, and uh, with the eyes also of a private practitioner mm -hmm. and some others. It seems like each one of your roles feeds the other. Yeah, in a way, I think they do, and I, uh, and it's very difficult. And I think that's why it's so difficult to to get rid of one right. uh, and uh, and say I'll do no teaching. I find that uh, it's uh, teaching is very very exciting and really I guess keeps if, you informed. If you were a form, you would be less like a square and more like an octopus. Yeah, in I think I'll be, that, I'll be like the Forum Plaza in the Esplanade, very similar to that, which is, to me, it's one of the most beautiful projects uh, uh -huh. in landscape architecture in the recent years. And I think that if you have a chance to, um, to talk to Elias Torres, I really would like you to ask him for that. Okay. And I think that the feature, the pergola, the photovoltaic pergola in that square, to me is um, really one of the most beautiful pieces of architecture done in, the, uh, in recent times. It's quite a counterpoint to the fish. Yes, it's quite a counterpoint <laughs> to the fish. <laughs> well, I think that...
concludes our telegrams. We want to thank you so much, Bet Figadas, for allowing us to come into your studio and ask you these questions. We've had a really wonderful conversation. And if you want to find out more about Bet Figadas and her studio, you can visit her website at www.betfigueres.com. That's B-E-T-F-I-G-U-E-R-A-S. Thank you for joining us for the second dispatch of Terragrams. To find out more about Terragrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Terragrams is made possible with the help of the School of Architecture and the Robertson Digital Media Lab at the University of Virginia. To find out more about their programs, please visit the website www.virginia.edu. And finally, special thanks to The Books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself to more of The Books at www.thebooksmusic.com. And as Mary says, be careful, the site is addictive. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the second delivery of telegrams. <laughs>